Alhamdulillah, it's a great honor to be invited to speak to you. And I'm uh, grateful to the uh, um, Ali Center for inviting me and to those who have come to listen. And the main aim of today's presentation is to try and show that the study of the form and content of the manuscripts is not only an essential adjunct to Islamic studies, but a significant field of studies in its own right. I want to talk a bit about the importance of manuscripts in Muslim intellectual life, what we can learn from them, and some of the ways in which we can and should benefit research in this field in the future. After that, I propose to discuss various aspects of the academic study of the handwritten book with reference to the Islamic cultural domain, such as codicology, paleography, and textual criticism, just saying a very little bit about the state of the art. And in doing all this, I want to present as briefly as possible an account of some research which I've undertaken in spare moments during a career that I've devoted almost entirely to enabling others to pursue their research, whether at the British Library or elsewhere in the world. It may be perhaps easier to convince one's listeners that an area of academic research is intellectual, intellectually respectable if one can walk them through a little of the experience, so to speak. And uh, after I've summed up, there will be time for questions and maybe for answers as well, if I know the answers. <coughs> to open up the subject, say, intend to try and illustrate the intellectual challenges involved in the study of manuscripts and some of the ways in which they contribute to our knowledge and understanding of the cultural and literary her heritage of Islam. Then I want to outline extremely briefly the various disciplines involved in scholarship relating to Islamic manuscripts, including the vital business of text editing. I also want to cite a few examples of the kind of information you can only obtain from manuscript sources and, if time permits, to show you a few interesting or attractive folios from manuscripts in the British Library's collection. And as I don't, of course, know the, all the details of your own interests and concerns professionally yourselves, it seems best to leave ample time for questions and answers rather than go too far into any technical details during this talk itself. Generally speaking, for the discovery and study of the Islamic cultural and scientific heritage, Turaf, there is a wide range of subjects that depend upon texts. That being the case, the number one reason why manuscripts are important for research is a rather straightforward one. The fact is that the majority of works of Islamic literature, I'm using that term adabiyat in its widest sense, not just meaning belletch or works of creative literature, is in fact unpublished. That is to say, if it survives at all, it's only in the form of one manuscript copy or more. Then of those texts that have been published, there's a sizable proportion of which the printed editions do exist but are not satisfactory because of the choice of sources, the editing itself, the production, or a combination of these, or because the earlier work's been superseded by new discoveries. Now, this is hardly a situation for Muslims to take pride in, but at least the physical survival of such texts, despite all the vicissitudes of history, leaves open the possibility that they may in future be edited and published. And, of course, the very extent of the Muslims' vast written legacy is something to be proud of and thankful for. On the other hand, it does appear that on the whole, Muslims have not attached as great importance as some other religious communities, Jewish people being a salient example, to preserving it and making it accessible in a reliable and attractive form. Now, on the face of it, this is more than a little paradoxical considering the immense, important, immense importance that Islam attaches to the pursuit of knowledge. The quest for knowledge is an obligatory on every Muslim man or woman. And to the written word and to other means of knowledge transmission, one must hope that this 
situation can be remedied eventually. So let's consider manuscripts for a moment in their historical context as vehicles for wisdom, knowledge, and information, but not necessarily always in that particular order. In my view, part of the importance and the interest of Islamic manuscripts has to do with the part which they played in the transmission of knowledge. We all know in a general sense that for many centuries before the advent of printing in the Muslim world, texts were transmitted orally and in manuscript, and in fact, some of them still are, but we don't necessarily take sufficient account of all the implications of this. One implication, for example, is what should not be surprised to find that just as students on their rehla would travel long distances to study with a scholar or to receive hadith transmissions from a narrator with a special isnad, scholars would likewise go to great lengths to locate and copy a sought-after text. Before the days of printing, then, it was far easier than it is today to appreciate the true value, the preciousness of sources of learning, be they oral or written, or the, uh, the charisma that surrounded uh, some manuscripts. Another factor, of course, in the cost of manuscripts books was the value, the cost of the time and skills of the craftsmen who produced many of them. One should not forget, though, that an enormous number of surviving manuscripts are not so much artistic creations as straightforward copies made in their own often very amateurish hands by students, scholars, and ordinary book lovers. The museum pieces, of course, are something else, and anyone who could afford to commission one knew that it would be a prestigious item to show off to your pals behind doors, behind closed doors. Without making a thorough study of the manuscript tradition, then, and the evidence it contains, we won't, for example, be able to trace in full the roots and the individuals through which knowledge was disseminated in the traditional world of Islam until comparatively modern times. Or what kind of evidence is there? <coughs> uh, <coughs> terms such as ijaza, samat, commentaries, translations, glosses, and indeed plagiarisms can be all be found in manuscripts as are forgeries. And the latter also may pay, repay study if they are accomplished forgeries. For those unacquainted with these terms, ejaza means in this context a written authorization from a sheikh, a teacher, to his student to teach the text in question. And these are quite often found inside a manuscript, normally, normally at the end. So typically, an ejaza inscription contains formulae of praise and blessings, followed by a statement of the writer's name, the student's name, the work or works in respect of which the authorization was given, and the date, sometimes also the place of writing the certificate. A sanat generally certifies that a specific copy of the work or commentary in question, or sometimes part of a whole work, has been read with the author, who has checked and vouches for its correctness. Documents of this kind are, of course, most valuable evidence about the transmission of learning and the careers and travels of individual scholars. And sometimes, incidentally, one can glean analogous information from the identity of the copyist of a manuscript, showing where a particular scholar or a particular manuscript was to be found at the date in question. Uh, one word of caution in about interpretation, the fact that a scribe or author has a particular nisbah indicates that at some point he or his ancestors, or she or her, her ancestors, had a connection with a particular geographical area or ethnic or tribal group. It does not necessarily mean that they themselves had a direct connection with that place anymore. So, for example, a manuscript copied by somebody with a Tabrizi name could well have been copied in Esfahan, or for that matter, in Baghdad, or Delhi, or Bukhara. Now we're talking about um, one of the important uh, uh, tasks relating to manuscripts is to reconstruct, if possible, the manuscript tradition. 
important study called Conceptual Tradition and Textual Tradition, Arabic Manuscripts on Science, Professor Rosti Rashid, uh, authority on the history of mathematics in the Islamic world, explains and analyzes aspects of the process of establishing the history of a text and the relationships between the known copies and also, where possible, the partially or wholly unknown ones. Now, these concepts perhaps need little explaining. Sometimes part or all of an otherwise lost work is known of by being mentioned or described in an extant source. Sometimes it's partially known inasmuch as one or more extracts from it have survived, either mutated or else related verbatim inside another work by or attributed to a different author. Rashi considers that scientific manuscripts are more neglected than those on religious or literary subjects. And perhaps he would say that. He distinguishes seven categories of manuscript tradition. The absent text, the hidden text, the truncated text, the summarized or bridged text, the complete text in a unique manuscript, the complete text in multiple manuscripts, and the master copy of the author's manuscript. Each is discussed, and Rashid explains how he established the text and manuscript tradition of a particular work by Nasiruddin Tusi that has survived in 25 different versions. There's another approach in textual studies that focuses on the recensions and versions through which a work or group of works passed, whether in manuscript or in print, or both. The Egyptian scholar Kamel Arafat Nibhan has produced a study that advocates this approach with Arabic literature, which seems to complement the literary historical concept of intertextuality. In this work, Manhaj Jadid for the Ilmul Bibliographia Tequinia, published in Cairo in 1993, Nepan advocates researching what he calls a bibliochronogram, which is an elaborate uh, device which charts the historical development of a text and its offshoots. So, there's just some of the aspects of uh, research which is still, in some ways, got a long way to go. It needs to be applied further, is what I mean. Uh, but practical steps involved in research research on the text. First of all, of course, to find the excellent text, which involves consulting bibliographies, catalogues, and other sources. Today, one can also ask colleagues elsewhere for information, something the internet has made far easier, quicker, and cheaper than in the old days. Secondly, obtaining copies. This is a problem that the text editors of old faced, and which has by no means disappeared today, is how to obtain copies of all the sources that are relevant to your task. Even if you know where they are, not all institutions, not all owners are very helpful. Many themselves possess no means of providing researchers with copies of texts. Others do possess them but are or claim to be, but often actually are, constrained by procedural obstacles or lack of resources. This can lead to frustration or even possibly to the failure of a project. Third parties studying the relationship between the extant copies. The ideal here is to establish what's called a stemma, which means a kind of family tree showing all the known manuscripts and the exact relationship between them. But this would involve complex and detailed comparative analysis. And it is, in fact, generally a theoretical ideal that is, in practice, often impossible. In fact, one of the experts on the subject has deemed the stemma, called the, called the stemma, the philologer's stone, by analogy with the philosopher's stone in alchemy. Fourthly comes the selecting the copy to use as the basis for the edition. There have been and there remain differences of opinion between textual critics Regarding the criteria for preference here, the oldest copy is often best, 
But surprise, not surprisingly, but that's not always the case. Other criteria to be implied include completeness, signs of care taken to check the text and establish its correctness, the lack of obvious poor variants and obscurities, and the clarity or otherwise of the handwriting too. The relative significance of these criteria vary, so it's better not to be dogmatic. Fifthly, there's the process and word processing and layout. Getting the work into a form ready for publication is another source of potential problems, though it's less so than it was when I was doing my thesis. I had to use a very elementary old word processor that took five minutes literally to print one page, and which didn't have the, uh, it will be the ingredients for the magical letters that you find in Persian or Turkish, but don't find in Arabic. Anyway, um, multilingual word processing software, pub powerful desktop publishing programs, and the advent of Unicode have not ended altogether the problems associated with producing texts in non-Roman scripts, whatever claims are made to the contrary. And this affects the economics of publishing, and it may still be easy to have an Arabic script text edition printed in Eastern country, even if there's Roman script in it as well. And finally, for a text edition, there's the question now, should it be published and printed or in digital form? The economic considerations, uh, uh, considerations of where you, whether you want to make your, uh, or think your edition can be the absolute definitive one, or whether making it digital will enable uh, you yourself or your critics to improve on what you put out first. Um, now I'm going to go into uh, some of the um, technical aspects of uh, study of manuscripts. So codicology, you probably know, comes from the Latin word codex, being a book in the form that we always associate with the book, word book today, though it wasn't always so. In other words, made of pages, statar, made of folded cut sheets, enclosed in some kind of binding. Codicology is a field of scholarship, and as the term came into being in Europe in the 18th century, refers to the study of books as physical entities, including the materials they're made of, the measurable attributes such as type of writing, surface use, size of folios, the written area of each folio, the number by folio, by folio or folded sheet that each gathering contains, as well as qualitative criteria. And what's the significance of this kind of data? After all, it may sound a bit trivial and uh, mundane. Well, for one thing, every manuscript is by definition a handmade artifact. As such, is bound to be unique in some degree, however small. And every single one can potentially add something to our knowledge and understanding of the process involved in its production and the nature and value of the culture that produced it. So it follows that the physical characteristics and makeup of a codex or scroll or any kind of document are often among the most reliable indicators of its date and its geographical provenance. For many, manuscripts lack any written statement to inform the reader of these. Hence, to compile codicological data and correlate it with examples of manuscripts whose production can be securely dated and located as a valuable exercise. An outstanding example is the large codicological database of Hebrew manuscripts compiled by Professor Malachi Beit Aliyeh of Hebrew University in Jerusalem. Smaller in scale but still really useful and applicable to our field is the Fichier des Manuscrits Moyens Orientaux Datés. So the collection of, um, of, uh, of documents, of, of, data, of, of dated uh, Middle Eastern uh, manuscripts, a project initiated by François Desroches with contributions from the BNF, the French National Library, British Library and other institutions. The entries contain a reproduction of a full page from a securely dated manuscript along with a standard set of codicological data. 
Uh, this was all before the digital age needs to be updated, but it's a model for what uh, could be achieved. So this a summary of the subject matter of code ecology comes from the handbook originally published in French, of which I edited the English version. It's uh, Islamic Code Ecology, an Introduction to the Study of Manuscripts in Arabic Script. The French one didn't say anything about Islamic. They were a bit fearful. That was published in 2000. So there's the fecal form of the manuscript. We were just talking about the codex, a conventional book, or a scroll, one or more sheets. Sheets sometimes in a loose binder. The writing surface or support, parchment made from animal skin, papyrus made from reeds, a paper of one kind or another, and occasionally other things, such as wood, tablets of wax, or such like. The choirs of a codex is another aspect, the way in which the sheets of paper are folded and sewn together as groups, and the number of such, um, number of such bifolia, or the sheets that are found in each choir that are sewn together. Writing instruments, not just the qalam or the reed pen itself, but materials such as the ink made from soot or gallnuts or other materials, as well as other black and colored inks and pigments. The ruling and the page layout in Islamic manuscripts, you probably know the layout is set, this is a normative uh, way, using a mostar or a framework with cords, which is pressed into the page to leave a network of vertical lines framing the text, the outside, and the horizontal lines in which the text is to be written. Then the script, the style of handwriting, ranged from the, ranging from the simplified kind of hand in which a madrasa student might copy a textbook he needs up to the most sophisticated calligraphy. The orthography, meaning the way that words are actually spelled or accented, which changes through time. Ornamental features such as non-figurative illumination or figurative illustrations. And the type of binding, ranging again from simple boards to masterpieces in leather with intricate filigree ornamentation. All these various elements and more provide evidence about manuscript production. <coughs> Here's an area which um, not only uh, library curators or um, art historians, but also conservators are making important discoveries. The history and provenance of writing materials is receiving deserved attention. A British Conservator Helen Loveday has written an excellent study of the characteristics of types of Islamic paper from the 14th to the 16th century. To underpin the comparative study of papers, she proposes a matrix of parameters covering the color of the paper, the opacity, the density of fiber, and other things. This is still a rough and ready way of uh, helping to establish uh, provenance and dates. It's not a precise science in any way because uh, we're not in a sort of stage of technology where new discoveries about particular materials get rapidly passed around the world. We're talking about the traditional world where it could take decades or centuries for things that become routine in one part of the Islamic world to be adopted in another. Take, for example, the introduction of paper. Uh, the dates vary enormously from one part of the Muslim world to another. For the analysis of inks and pigments, various advanced scientific techniques have been developed, such as particle emission, X-ray analysis, and Raman spectroscopy. But simply determining the chemical content of a pigment hasn't yet taken us very far towards being able to establish a manuscript's date or place of provenance. Materials and styles of bookbinding represent another area of fruitful research is being carried out. And this is uh, illustrative of um, the people in Iran and the amount of uh, effort that uh, scholars put into things here. Uh, an article in Persian I found, 18 pages long, describes the various types of cardboard 
used in manuscript and book production in Iran from medieval times right up until today. It sounds a bit boring, but for the codicologist, it opens up an avenue of research, may lead to a new understanding of how, when, and where the hard book, book, hardback book first came to be developed. Another groundbreaking study by Mandanda Bandana Balkeshli, an Iranian working in Malaysia, describes how laboratory analysis she did confirmed the validity of an old trade secret of medieval scribes in Iran. You need to add saffron to ink in order to prevent it from corroding the paper. This is especially the paper made from rafs, from um, uh, gullnuts, tends to be acidic and can eat through the paper. So what can you do to counteract that? You prepare the paper uh, properly with something, and also you put mix some saffron in with the ink. It works. And she showed how. Another Iranian scholar, Najib Mail Haravi, actually his really families from Afghanistan, come to think of it, published a collection of treatises in Persian composed by medieval Islamic book artists. These cover technical subjects such as making ink, the ruling, the ruling decoration of the rulings, a jadval, or page frames, and the binding. These techniques were often regarded as trade secrets to be passed on from master to student, and so the appearance of this material was a bit surprising to me, as well as most enlightening. And a little bit about paleography. This term, derived from two Greek words meaning ancient and writing, denotes the study and decipherment of different scripts and styles of writing. Anyone working on handwritten documents, even ones written in their own language, may need to invest some time in acquiring guidance and experience of deciphering them. Learning to read and fully understand and contextualize more complex material, such as archival documents in Ottoman Turkish, perhaps classical example, requires more in-depth paleographic study and also a considerable amount of background knowledge of the administrative jargon, or phraseology if you prefer, that's used in them. For this reason, there are a number of good books in Turkish about deciphering of documents and manuscripts in Ottoman. As far as I know, no such work has yet appeared in Arabic. Be yes, useful to have one. I've cited one example, but there are other kinds of um, manuscripts and documents that call for skill and experience to decipher them. And here's an example from my own experience with the British Library. I was getting interested in a volume that contains a series of rare Persian texts, all copied at Baghdad during the early 9th, 15th century by a man called Nizam. It seems he must have found an opportunity to make copies of some rare texts which he had come across in one of Baghdad's many libraries, but had only a few days in which to do so. So in order to make it possible to achieve his objective, he transcribed the text he wanted in a kind of shorthand. But what kind of shorthand? You might say Arabic writing is already shorthand, doesn't have the short vowels. Uh, he omitted almost all the dots from the letters. Eventually, working away, I was able to decipher most of the text I wanted to read, but that still left quite a lot of gaps. In the end, all my queries were solved when Muhammad Jafar Mahjoub, the Iranian scholar, visited from L.A., a great expert on Persian literature. He had once worked in the law courts in Iran when he was young and learned in that job to read every kind of obscure handwriting. Easy for him, so that's a precious asset. So about research fields in paleography, the matter of orthography, Rasm al-Khat, is one area in which little work has been done, although some catalogers have applied their knowledge in this field, but offers considerable potential as a means of enhancing our knowledge of where and when manuscripts were produced and added to. Orthography relates primarily to philological rather than aesthetic aspects of writing. For example, in Persian, the post-vocalic letter dal turned into dal without a dot almost everywhere by the mid-8th, 14th century, so that bovad becomes bovad, for example. So this helps you with uh, establishing dates for some early texts. 
As for styles of handwriting, more work's been done in this area, which indeed is where a good deal of the early publishing relating to manuscript studies began in the form of examples of various styles of writing. More recently, this fichier des manuscrits which I mentioned, added a wealth of useful data. But particularly important in this regard is the research on the development and typology of Quranic scripts. As the work of Yasin Dutton shows, there is much to be learned by looking at the variant readings, the Qira'at, in conjunction with handwriting and orthography. And that's especially because, unlike other things, the Qira'at can be correlated more specifically with given transmitters, localities, and dates. Aspects of history of manuscripts such as waqf deeds, ownership inscriptions, valuations, as dideh, which I'll try and explain later, and the history of libraries and private collections, and the connection between these and development of Western interest in research on the Islamic world, all these have been investigated by scholars in both East and West. So there's a problem about the, um, as I said, some works of which there is no text edition. There's a major failing in the study of Islamic heritage to date. Let's look into this problem. Why has this important task of publishing the unpublished text so far remained to considerable extent undone? To be sure, a great deal of good work has been undertaken, not only during the past hundred years, actually, but nor only, nor only by non-Muslims, although the contribution of the latter has been extremely significant. According to experts, many of the printed editions that were produced by scholars in the Ottoman Empire did represent a high level of scholarship and rigor. It's the paucity of sources in some case that was uh, deficient. They didn't have access to the range of uh, texts around the outside the extent of the Ottoman Empire. That has been said about, for example, the old Cairo edition of Imam Ghazali Ahya Ulum al-Din, also about uh, Abu Hafs Amar al-Sahrawardi's Awarif al-Ma'arif, classical manual of Sufism. Although a modern edition of this was published in Beirut in the early 1970s, it really can't be said to have wholly superseded its predecessor from the Ottoman period. For one thing, the editor simply exercised his own judgment, or at least one hoped he did, and included no record at all of any of the varied readings in the text, subject I'll be mentioning in a minute, but almost certainly, in the nature of things, some variant readings must exist. The sad fact is that an enormous number of texts of important to Islamic studies, whether we look at religious works or at other branches of learning and literature, have yet to appear in editions befitting their central position. And compare, for example, the number of scholars who have produced editions of English poets like Tennyson or Browning, or indeed, people much less important and prominent, let alone the truly great figures like Shakespeare, Milton, or Pope, of whom multiple editions do exist, some better than others. I've spoken to professors about this who ref they refuse to accept, some professors refuse to accept a as a valid doctoral thesis project the production of an annotated edition of a text, no matter how important or how difficult that text might be. This doesn't apply at all in Iran, where so many fine editions appear. And there are, of course, plenty of honourable exceptions as to what appears to be a general acceptance of mediocrity elsewhere. Mediocrity elsewhere. Two are in Arabic. There's Ayman Fuad Zayed's magnificent edition of Al-Makriz's Khatat, and then Chagatai Turkic Eji Mano's edition of the memoirs of the Mughal Emperor Babur. So to um, produce a, a critical edition, you have to exercise something called textual criticism, the application to a text or a group of texts, one or more criteria, authenticity and soundness. These criteria may be historical or philological, or they may be aesthetic. It depends on such factors of the subject matter and the character of the work in question. 
textual Christian has been applied to the Bible for centuries, and some scholars recently attempt to supply to apply similar methodology to the text of the Quran in the hope of either improving or disproving it. The more controversial a theory, the more likely it is to receive attention, however implausible it might be. But let's return to our subject. Aside from whether a given text is authentic in the state we find it, the purpose of textual criticism is to try to re reproduce as faithfully as possible the original text as the author themselves intended it to be read. And bearing in mind that sometimes the author changed their intentions uh, in the process um, of uh, composition. In cases where the state of the text is too disordered to permit that, or where the author was unable to complete the work, his or her intentions have to be, have, have to be uh, some, surmised to some extent, and, um, but through detective work. So what's the process involved in this task, and what are the skills required to accomplish it successfully? We find uh, textual variance or variance reading, which means differences between the wording of the text according to which source you consult. These may arrive from scribal errors in copying, with omissions, repetitions, misspellings, misreadings, and wishful thinkings. Often variant readings stem from actual differences in the source manuscripts from which they worked, difference in transmission of the text. So it's an important part of the editor's work to record any such variance exercising their own judgment about which is the best, and then recording the second best, the third best, and so on. And this involves having what's called an apparatus critis criticus. So because uh, scholarship on uh, textual criticism began in Latin and Greek, and so we're using Latin terms here, um, it's the area of the page in which the textual variants are recorded, normally at the foot of the page, but occasionally in endnotes. And the word for which a variant exists have marks referring to the apparatus criticus, or a symbol. In critical editions, each manuscript is represented by a letter or symbol used in the interests of brevity. So a critical edition means a version of a text that's been subjected to informed critical assessment and represents the editor's best endeavors to reconstruct the original. Uh, the editor must indicate for this to be qualifying as a critical edition at least the most significant variant re readings, not necessarily all, and it's appropriate to justify their choices uh, or their preference for a given manuscript in um, general terms in their introduction, which should also have a reasoned comparison and assessment of the sources and a statement about the approach used in the reconstructing the text. Introduction should also be used to describe and contextualize the work and the commentary where this is required to elucidate passages in the author's text. So a variety of skills called for. Does this not sound like an intellectually demanding task worthy of a doctorate for someone who slaves over this kind of a job? So it's a little bit about my own experiences. I'm not saying they're particularly more significant than anybody else's, just I'm better qualified to talk about them. I had to, I decided to involve, uh, to, to edit and translate with a commentary, the Tarji of, that means the poems comprised of stanzas from Divani Kabir, the collected lyric verse, the great 13th century mystic and Persian poet, Walana Jalaluddin Rumi, most famous as the author of the Mass Navi. In the early stages, a problem came up. Mujtaba um, Minovi, who was certainly one of the greatest Iranian literary scholars, had written a major article about what translates as the need for caution in editing the works of Molana. Minovi had discovered that many of the poems in Divan were found in some of the earliest known manuscripts, but not in others. And he concluded for that reason that such poems were probably inauthentic. However, Minovi had reached this conclusion simply by studying the apparatus criticus of the edition by Badil Zaman Fuzan Fa, 
which showed that a large number of the poems in Divan appeared only in a certain number of the early manuscripts, not in others. Once I was able to study the earliest manuscripts for myself, careful examination showed that Minavi's conclusion wasn't correct. Most of the discrepancies between the contents of the early copies of Divan, also known by the later title Divanish Shams Tabrizi, can be explained another way, as I will try to show in the next slide. Main factor turned out to be that several of the earliest extant copies, and they're from quite close to the author's time, within 10, 20 years of his death, are complete single volumes that originally belonged to a set that comprised two or more volumes. Some are from copies of the divan that were arranged according to the rhyming letter, which is, of course, the traditional way of compiling a divan in any language. Other manuscripts, however, came from a set in which the ghazals were all arranged by meter. So Aubrey's suggestion about this is surely correct. He says in his catalogue for the entry for the beautiful Dublin manuscript that it suggests the form of a gigantic hymn book. In other words, it seems to have been produced for the purpose of singing in sessions of the form of Vikrullah, invocation, known to some adherents of some Sufi orders as Sama. The main munshid or singer would select a ghazal from the divan that was appropriate to the rhythm of the, of, the, of, the, of the dance of, of, the, of the Sama and to the mood of the spiritual moment. And this, this uh, arrangement by Bahar, by Mita, was uh, conducive to that. Anyway, analysis of Horizon Fau's apparatus criticus and comparison with the manuscript <coughs> invalidated Minovi's argument, which leads to an important conclusion. Since several early manuscripts do survive, a would, if completed by extrapolation with missing volumes, contain largely the, names, the same poems, though copied by different scribes and different dates and places, the onus of proof now rests on those who do not accept that Rumi wrote or dictated most of the poems in them. I should mention in passing that uh, the Masnavi is about 26,000 baits or couplets, the Divan nearer 35 to 40,000. It's immense. Anyway, I tabulated the existence of very readings shared by the early manuscripts showing that most do, do have textual variants in common, which illustrates the fact that the discrepancy is not as large as formerly supposed, and this is part of the evidence most of the poems are likely to be authentic works by Maulana Rumi himself. What else can one say about the types of intellectual challenge that come up in dealing with Islamic manuscripts? Without wishing to spend too much time on my own work, it seems sensible to focus here on my own experiences at the British Library. One task that used to come up at almost any time quite frequently, would be the arrival of an inquiry, inquirer with a manuscript that they or relative owned. They wanted to know what it was, and often, problematically, since one was not allowed to make valuations, they wanted to know its financial value, if I said it's going to be worth anything. Another task, of course, was to identify and to assess a potential or actual acquisition for the library, among things that came up in auctions and so on in London, the World Centre for the Sale of um, Islamic Manuscripts. To identify the text or text might involve simply looking at the beginning of the manuscript or the colophon inscription at the end of it and simply finding the title there. But that was surprisingly rare. To identify the item, one often had to deploy one's knowledge and experience and to write a catalogue description, one always had to. Likewise, the majority of manuscripts lack a colophon at the end that gives any date or place of copying. To identify the text then, one would look through the first and last pages, section and chapter headings, etc. for clues. To establish an approximate date and locate the item, one would look at the writing style, orthography, and codicological features. Here's, inshallah, the time for just one example of how cataloguing a manuscript opened up a field of research 
in this particular instance, two fields. The manuscript of Nizam that I referred to earlier, in which he copied uh, rather a lot of, uh, of text rather quickly but without any dots, um, contained a commentary on divine names, which was billed as being um, by the Kobravi Sheikh Seferdin Bokharzi of Bukhara, died, I think, 1336, I think, which I studied with an Iranian professor and then translated into English. But it turned out, uh, when he looked into it, to be part of a great treatise on the divine names in Persian by Samoni Rohalvar. So somebody had taken this, parts of this work and uh, presumably to enhance its prestige, attributed it to Sheikh Seferdin Bokharzi, who in the region of Bukhara was known in his time as Sheikh Adam, though he was the Sheikh of the world. Secondly, the circumstances of this brand new sketch production, as evidenced in the colophon, as explained, he had to do a lot in a short time, led to my research project on how long does it take to copy a manuscript. This was submitted to the Volkan Foundation for publication in the Yadnami Iraja Afshar, a commemorative volume for an Iranian scholar about five years ago, but it still hasn't uh, gotten to print. But that was an interesting project because uh, nearly all the data that comes in this book and other writings about how long it took to uh, write something is, consists of Asatir uh, al-Awalin, um, stories about how such and such a man could write so many pages, those epic feats of uh, rapid writing. And uh, one doesn't necessarily attach too much credence to those unless it's backed up by, uh, by something. There's another field of um, study which has been little, relatively little, little explored so far as that of autograph manuscripts. And in this category, I include not only works by famous authors that are written in their own hand, but also notes or copies made by other authors inside, yeah, inside a manuscript. By combing through parts of the British Library's manuscript collections over some years, in stolen moments, I succeeded in compiling a list of texts that are in the hand of, or at least annotated by, well-known authors or editors, as well as by crowned figures, crowned heads, you know, royalty, or famous calligraphers, other people famous for some other reason than as authors, all that were commissioned and or owned by famous people. The scholars and writers are represented include such names as those of uh, Ibn Khalikan, Al-Wahhabi, Qutbuddin Shirazi, Abdurrahman Jami, Saib Tabrizi, and Ibrahim Hakka Bursabi. What do these examples have to teach us? Well, for one thing, handwriting style, possibly it's linked to personality for those who believe in uh, this. You don't have to believe in all the details of uh, this, uh, possibly all occult science to see that there is a connection in some way you can learn about some, something about the writer. The writing of the great polymath of Bahabi, for example, is very neat, symmetrical, symmetrical and organized. Working practices are illustrated in the more inspirational handwriting style of evidence in the British Library's autograph manuscripts of Ibn Khalikan. We also have manuscripts that seem to illustrate how some famous men had to work as copyists to earn a living. And uh, in some cases, the feeling that people had about their circumstances of their lives are documented in colophons and other inscriptions by the copyists, be they famous figures or obscure uh, uh, copyists whom we only know by their names. Nearly finished here. Just wanted to say a little bit about Manuscript of Artistic Merit, The Arts of the Book as Enhancements or Central Features, Calligraphy, Illumination, Binding, Paper Making, and the Process by which 
sumptuous illustrated and illuminated calligraphic texts were planned and executed are areas in which art historians have produced findings of great importance. And that despite the fact that until about three decades ago, it was practically impossible to find an art historian working in this field who knew any of the languages. It's moved on. I mean, in the West, it was almost impossible to find them, and there weren't many people pursuing art history in, the, in the, these uh, Muslim countries. Two examples of what I was talking about are Shreve Simpson's fine monograph on the manuscript of Haft Orang, <coughs> the collected Master B poems in Persian of uh, Jami, preserved at the Freer Gallery in Washington, D.C., <coughs> which Ahmed Bey and I were looking at uh, yesterday, and Elaine Wright's forthcoming opus on the illuminated Quran of Ruzbehan and Shirazi at the Chester Beatty Library in London. By mentioning Shreve Simpson, she's teaching a course at the Rare Book School in, here in Virginia later on this year. So if anybody's interested, I'm sure she'll be a wonderful authority to listen to on the subject. I've heard a lecture on the, the Shahnameh and other things before. Um, although these subjects are all more the province of the art historian than of the manuscript specialist, there's ample reason for the latter to take an interest in certain aspects of them for reasons to do with codicology and paleography, and for other reasons as well, such as well, the, the, um, the organization of the crafts and how these big projects, royal projects, were carried out, which tended to be documented in archival sources in the way that uh, lesser projects wouldn't be. This is because often the style of handwriting and or decoration affords clues to the date <coughs> and place of production of a manuscript where there's nothing else available, although caution is required since decorative elements were sometimes added long after the text was copied. One even finds manuscripts in which an illuminated heading has been taken from a different manuscript and pasted in. Indeed, this is what happened to them on the most famous Persian manuscripts of all, the Khamsa uh, Nazami, Nazami, that was uh, made for Shah Tahmas, but suffered in the mid-16th century, which is in the British Library. So artistic features can be misleading. In general, however, it's the case that the study of this aspect of manuscripts has made enormous strides, and the sheer beauty of this material has brought them to the attention of the lovers of the arts of the book outside as well as inside the arts of Islam. On that note, we must leave this subject, although there's a great deal more to be said on that. So, um, wrapping this up, in relation to the edit editing and publication study of Islamic texts, despite praiseworthy efforts have been mentioned, there's an enormous amount that remains to be done. Far more scholars, technical people, and of course financial resources will have to be devoted to such work if the task of bringing the Islamic Torah to the world in a fitting form is to be accomplished. Now, I hope I've made it clear. I'm not framing this in exclusive and religious terms. It is all to do with uh, Islamic uh, spiritual and religious uh, heritage, although I personally think that's enormously important. We're talking about everything to do with the, the cultural history Advances, advances need to be made in scholarship. One aspect is the importance of manuscript studies needs to be properly appreciated. In addition, the interest of manuscripts in their own right is not widely appreciated except by art historians, whose uh, contributions I've just noted, and can be usefully imitated in other areas of discipline of Islamic manuscript studies. <coughs> Consequently, there's a great shortage of specialists in this subject, and I'm hoping this presentation or I managed to publish an article about this, may encourage some people to take an interest, active interest in the subject of manuscripts, even possibly, despite the discouragement I mentioned on the academic circles, to consider specializing in the field. And thank you very much for your attention. I wish you all every success, whatever field of studies you're pursuing. Thank you.